Open up to Luke chapter 2, and it's a, it's a passage that I'm sure every one of you are familiar with. Uh, I brought a guest with me today to, uh, to read this passage to you, because I, I like the way he reads it better than, than I can do it. So, uh, Teddy, you can go ahead and, and advance it, and my, my guest is going to share the word with us Isn't this morning. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. He shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God, and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. So our passage is Luke chapter 2. Verses 8 through 14, and uh, it's one of my favorite Christmas uh, Christmas shows, is watching Charlie Brown Christmas. You know, one of, one of the things I'm learning, and I always, when I was an associate pastor, a youth pastor, I always thought of my pastor, and, you know, he's retiring, he's been, I think he just, he's wrapping up his 27th year, actually, and you think about it like 27 Easter's and 27 Christmases and say how, how many times can you preach the message and do it in a way that people are receptive because sometimes even though they're, they're great messages, they, you know, I, I sitting there kind of watching him, I'm thinking, how, how do you make it fresh each time? How do you keep people's attention and, and bring something, uh, new to it? Well, the truth is you don't have to bring anything new to it. And what I'm finding is each time I get into some of these familiar passages, the Lord just brings something that either, uh, you know, you didn't see before or just emphasizes something different or, or shows you something that you didn't see previously. And over these next several weeks, we're going to be looking at particularly this passage. And one verse in particular, it's, it's verse 10. Uh, Luke writes, of this account is verse 10 says, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You know, as our friend Linus tells us, this passage shows us the true meaning of Christmas, the birth of Jesus. You know, we, as Christians, we have that phrase we like to use. He's the reason for the season. And a close second is little Debbie Christmas cakes. Especially now that they come out with red velvet Christmas cakes. I mean, uh, amazing. But Jesus surpasses even Christmas cakes. But what exactly did the birth of Jesus mean to those people at that time? Because when you look at it in that context, it opens up that story a little bit more because you, you try to feel what they would feel and, and, you know, ask the questions that they would ask and, and try to just put yourself in their shoes. And as we do that, we can see how it translates to us today. The answer is essentially found in that one verse that I read. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. In this one verse, we have a threefold purpose of Christmas, a threefold purpose of the birth of Christ. The first is, he brings good news. The second is, it's good news that will bring great joy. And the third is, it is for all people. This is going to kind of be our focus over the next several weeks. The good news tells us that Christmas time is a time of salvation. The fact that it should bring great joy tells us that Christmas time is a time of celebration. And lastly, because it's for all people, it's a time of reconciliation, of God bringing all his people Back to him. It does. It's nice, isn't it? <laughs> so for the next few weeks, we're going to see 
in more detail how the story of Jesus' birth literally changed everything and how important it is to never lose sight of this. Because especially as the years go on, Christmas becomes so much more commercialized and you get all these things that can distract you from who Jesus is and why he came and what it meant for that people. So we're going to look at the context of that day. What were they thinking? How did it affect them? And see how it translates to us. So part one, obviously, is going to focus on the good news. A time of salvation. Okay, that's why we sang songs about Jesus Messiah. He is mighty to save. Because it is a time of salvation. And verse 11 essentially tells us this. The very first verse after the proclamation of I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The next sentence Luke writes is, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So first and foremost, I think the purpose of Christ's birth was to bring salvation. Because the people had messed it up all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It had been, the relationship with God had been separated. There had been a a chasm there that had yet to be truly filled. And Jesus was now coming To fill that gap. Good news in the Bible is essentially one word. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it, but I'm going to try it. Euangelio. It's basically, it's two words put together. You meaning good, and angelio meaning message or messenger. Sometimes it's referred to angelic uh, messages. So it essentially means good news or a good message. Now the Savior has been born, not only that, but the angel says he has been born to you. He hasn't been born just to Mary and Joseph, so this Savior has been born to you, the people of Israel. Because he, the angel is speaking this to the shepherds. Okay, people that, they probably felt like we're not important, and yet the angels, the angel is giving them the message of the birth of Christ, the birth of the Savior. So the Savior has been born. He has been born to you or for you. And as we look at how Christmas is a time of salvation, not salvation, that was Thanksgiving, time of salvation, I want us to realize that we've been saved from something, we've been saved for something, and we've been saved by something. We've been saved from sin. And saved from self-reliance or saved from the law, the, the works mindset. We've been saved for a purpose. You haven't just been saved to avoid hell. You've been saved for a purpose. And we're going to learn what that purpose is. And lastly, we've been saved by grace, through faith. This is not of ourselves, but is a gift of God. So those will be our, our three focus points this morning. So first and foremost, we are saved from sin and self-reliance. From the time of Adam and Eve's sin until Jesus' death and resurrection, man was under the curse of sin and burden of the law. In other words, they had a debt that was owed to God. And until Jesus died, that debt had not been paid. Thousands of years of man owing God and not being able to pay him back. But the birth of Jesus marked the beginning of the end of this curse. So when they saw the birth of Jesus, when they heard the birth of Jesus, they knew after thousands of years, finally this debt is about to be paid. So I want us to open up to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at essentially two passages. Isaiah chapter 9 and also Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah, the prophet spoke uh, many times of the prophecies of the Messiah. He spoke of Jesus, even his birth. In chapter 7, he speaks of how the the baby will be born of a virgin. But in chapter 9, he goes into more detail of what the birth of this Savior is going to mean for Israel. Isaiah 9 and verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. 
by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Father, we come to you once again and as we get into your word, Lord, we we thank you that this is not just, again, not just a, a book of stories, but Lord, this is the truth of who you are. It is your words spoken from your mouth through through your servants. Lord, we pray once again you bring it to life. Holy Spirit, give us understanding and comprehension. May we walk out of here having a better understanding of, of the Christmas story than we did when we walked in. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all you are and all you do. I ask for your anointing, God. I know that I'm up here as a flawed individual, Lord. I, I too have fallen short of your glory. But God, you have redeemed me. You have placed me in this position. And I thank you for the high privilege of being your spokesman. Speak through me that I would only speak your words and not my own. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have this beautiful picture At the time, that's all it is. It's just a picture. Isaiah, in the midst of prophesying about their judgment, because if you go back to chapter 8, it talks about how God is going to use Assyria to judge Israel. How Israel was going to be uh, conquered and they were going to be exiled. They were going to become a part of, of, of these lands under these rulers. And then in chapter 9, there's that one word, nevertheless. So nevertheless, even though there's judgment coming and even though you deserve it, nevertheless, God has a plan and he is going to redeem you. Okay, like I said, chapter 8 speaks of their coming exile and their uh, their defeat at the hands of Assyria. But chapter 9 begins with the word of encouragement amidst the prophecy of judgment. Nevertheless, despite this deserved act of judgment, in the future, he's saying in the future, this is what will happen. There will be no more gloom. There will be no more darkness. A great light is coming and this light will shine upon them. The nation, God's people, will be enlarged. Their joy will be increased and they will rejoice. And I love this one. The yoke of burden will be shattered. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm going to lift it. I'm going to shatter the yoke of burden. That word shattered means broken, dismayed, abolished. So the bar across their shoulders, which was the yoke of sin, when sin came into the world, immediately we came, we came under this yoke that we, we couldn't get out of. We were forced to go wherever it took us. The rod of the oppressor, the warrior's boots, the garments, the burden of the law was really, it was holy, but it was also an oppressor to the people because it constantly reminded them, like we talked about last week, it was a constant reminder that they were not good enough. It was a constant reminder that they had fallen short and there was nothing they could do. So even though the law was holy, it oppressed them because they couldn't do anything about it. But Isaiah says a time is coming when this bar, this yoke will be shattered. Because we know that we cannot save ourselves. More than that, not only can we not save ourselves, we are usually the source of most of our problems. We cannot get out of our own way because we, we think we can do it. If I'm just strong enough, if I'm just smart enough, if I just make the right choice, make the right, if I just do this or do that, 
We try to do things in our own strength and sometimes even in our responses to what others have done to us, we bring upon more burden and more uh, problems because instead of trusting Jesus and, and trusting him to deal with those that want to come against us, we take it all in. And then we become bitter and we become angry and we become hurt. And instead of letting him take it, we put it all on ourselves. We put the yoke on ourselves that Jesus has already broken. First John 1 verses 8 through 10, John speaks of this. He says, anyone who claims they have no sin is a liar, is deceiving themselves. And he goes on to say again, if you claim to have no sin, you make God out to be a liar. If you claim you don't need God, and then you make God a liar. That's not the message we want to send to people. We want to send the message that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. So this is a great word that this yoke of, of burden is going to be shattered. But how is it going to happen? Verses 6 and 7 tell us, For unto us a child is born. It's going to come through the birth of a child. For us, to us, not the U.S., but to us, all of mankind, Jesus has been given. The government will be upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And if you go back a couple chapters, Isaiah says, we called Emmanuel, God with us. God literally came to be with us. This is not a leader who burdens his subjects, but one who instead takes the burden upon himself. That's the kind of leader this child grew up to be, and that's the kind of leader he is today, because he's taken his place at the right hand of God. Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus, in the story of Zacchaeus, he says, I have come to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come to deal with all the other stuff you guys want to deal with. I came to seek and to save the lost. That's why Zacchaeus, this man you all hate, he's been saved today. Salvation has come to his house. Matthew 20 and verse 28. You've got two brothers fighting over who's, you know, who gets to sit at Jesus' right hand. Jesus gives a, a great teaching and he, he closes it up by saying, I came to serve, not to be served. So if you want to sit with me, you want to sit at my right hand, you got to become a servant. It's not about being served, about serving others. And then look what will happen because of this child. It said the, the, his government and his peace, there will be no end. Justice and righteousness will come through this child, not his subjects. You have not been called by God to carry out his government. He said, I'll do that on my own. Your job is to go love others. You open their eyes to who I am. I'll be their leader. I'll be their king. I'll be their God. You be their brother. You be their sister. You be their friend. You cannot be saved by government. We all know that. We cannot be saved by business. We cannot be saved by academics, by how smart you are, how much you've learned. There's nothing wrong. There are good things in all of those. But none of them can save you. You need a savior, someone outside of yourself, someone outside of this world. No. And this solution came 2,000 years ago, more than 2,000 years ago. Your savior came. Now think of this. Isaiah prophesied this word about 700 years before Jesus was ever born. 700 years. So for centuries, the people of Israel, they've heard this, they've been, they've, they've heard, they've read the prophets, they've heard the, the prophecies of Isaiah, it's been passed down through their families. For centuries they've been hearing about this. And now picture these shepherds that are out in that field that night, the angel comes and says, behold, today is the day. A baby has been born, he is Christ the Lord. I bring you good news that's going to bring great joy and it's for all people. 
this event was one they have been waiting for for hundreds of years. I imagine there was a mix of excitement, of nerves, of fear, probably even of skepticism and confusion. It's like, is this really it? We, you know, this 700 years ago this word was given. Is this really the time? Could it be? And they went to see the baby. They hear the angels singing. And we have further proof that Jesus came, Jesus' birth was a a time of salvation. Later on in Luke chapter 2, Jesus is presented in the temple. There's a man there named Simeon. Uh, Verse 25, it gives the account. There's a man named Simeon says he was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Consolation means the comfort, the consoling, the comforter, the counselor. We just read in Isaiah how he would be called wonderful counselor. Simeon has been waiting for this counselor to come to counsel Israel. He sees baby Jesus in the temple and he says this in verse 29 start verse 28 says Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying sovereign Lord as you have promised you now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel So he praises God. He says, God, I have now seen your salvation because he looked at Jesus. He saw salvation. He knew that because of this birth, a light of revelation, in other words, a disclosure of truth has now come to the Gentiles, a truth that they have never known, that they have never heard of. Now God had God had begun to to show, show them the truth of who he is. And for Israel... It was for their glory because this was the fulfillment of Isaiah's of God's promise through Isaiah 700 years prior. See, Isaiah prophesied about how this would happen. He talked about the baby. He talked about what that baby would bring. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 4 tells us how it did happen. Isaiah gives the prophecy, Paul speaks of its fulfillment. It's Galatians chapter 4, and actually I'm going to start in uh, chapter 3 and verse 26. Paul writes this to the Galatians. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to that promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he was no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of this world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but you are a son. And since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. So Isaiah speaks of what the child would bring. Paul says, this is what has now happened because of Jesus, because of his birth. The birth of Jesus marked the coming of salvation from the power and the penalty of sin, which we've just noted. But it also marked salvation from the price of sin. Paul says that God sent his son who was born of a woman who was born under the law to redeem the lawbreakers. And in case you didn't know, that's you and that's me. Okay, he was born under the law so that he could be perfect, fulfill the law, and in so doing make you and I righteous. 
So you have not only been saved from sin and saved from slavery, but you have been saved for sonship. You've been saved to be a child of God. You've been saved from slavery and saved for sonship. The birth of Jesus not only marked your salvation from something bad, but it marked your salvation for something very good. For heaven, eternity with Jesus. For all the rights as a firstborn son. Okay, that's why it says sonship. You know, some people like to change and make everything gender neutral, but there's a reason it says sonship. Because the firstborn son in the Jewish culture and in many cultures was the one who got, he got the double portion, the double blessing. The, the father would come and, and, and put his right hand upon the oldest son and he would, he would pray the double portion, the double blessing upon him because he was the heir. Paul says, through Jesus, you've become the firstborn son. Heir to everything he has. Heir to the double portion, the double blessing that the Father would bestow. So you've not only been saved from something, but you've been saved for something good. You were saved from death and saved for life. You were saved from sin and you were saved for sonship. You were saved for a purpose. You were saved for a purpose. See, some people, they get saved and it's, it's their goal to just not mess up. Ooh, I've been saved from, I've been saved from hell. I just, and they walk in fear all of their lives, just not wanting to mess that up. But God says, there's so much more. I, I didn't just deliver you from sin, but I've made you like my firstborn son. That's why you are co-heirs with Christ. Sharing the inheritance that Jesus too was promised as the Son of God. Being saved for sonship means you were saved to be His child. There's nothing better than being God's child. You weren't saved to be a servant. You weren't saved to be His agent. You weren't saved to, to be His voice. You were saved to be His child. That's what he wants. That was the original purpose for us, was to be in relationship with God. That got messed up, and it had to be restored, and Jesus restored it. I want to read you a passage, a short passage from Ephesians. Paul, again, he, he speaks of basically what we have as children of God. I'm going to start in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. He writes this, it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which which was freely given in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And I'll stop there. Jesus restored us to our original purpose, to be in relationship with God here on earth and as we know eventually in heaven. Paul writes here that he chose us in him, in who? In Jesus. He chose us in Jesus to be holy and blameless. You can't be acceptable to God without Jesus. He makes you acceptable because he is acceptable. Paul writes that you are predestined to be his children Before you were ever created, God's purpose for you was to be his child because of love. He said, out of love he predestined. First John tells us that God is love. Not just that he has love, but he is the embodiment of love. And out of that love, you were created to be his child. 
And this was all to the praise of his grace. Freely given in Jesus. You're not a child because of what you can do or what you've done or what you didn't do. But you're his child because he's your father and he loves you. Those of you that are parents, you can understand that. No matter what your kids do, they're your child and you love them. It doesn't mean that that you are excited about every choice they make. But you love them regardless. And you, you do your best to always let them know, no matter what you do, I am your mom, I am your dad, I am always going to love you. But how much more is God going to do that? How much more is he going to be that? Because he's the perfect father. He's the perfect parent. Never makes mistakes. All this was to the praise of his grace, which was freely given in Jesus. Because of that, we've been redeemed by his blood. We've been forgiven of our sins. And it says that the mystery of his will has been made known, which was purposed in Christ. What's the mystery of his will is to love God and love others. Jesus took all the rules, all the things that Israel tried to do for years and years and years and said, look guys, man, you're really messing this up. If you focus your your attention on loving God and loving other people, that's all you got to do. Everything else will take care of itself. Love God, love others. Make disciples. Making disciples starts with the love of God. It's not about teaching them a bunch of stuff. It's about loving them in the Lord. And as they grow, as they draw unto God, as they experience His love, they're going to be discipled because they're going to be drawn into His Word. They're going to be drawn into to want to know more of Him. You know, there's nothing that compares to finding your purpose in Christ. You know, I've got a, my job is a pastor, but it's not a job. I wake up every morning doing what God has called me to do, knowing that I've got a purpose in Christ. And you have, maybe some of you have no idea how good that feels. There's not one time where I'm like, oh God, just get me through this day. Every single day when I'm spending my time with the Lord, when I'm praying, I'm thanking God that I'm able to do what I do because God has placed me in his will. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you understand that your purpose is to be a child of God, then whatever you do, it's going to, it's going to bring joy to that work. It's going to bring joy to whatever it is that, that God has given you to do. Think of this. Before sin... Adam had a purpose, correct? Adam worked. Okay, sin, the curse of sin was not work. Adam worked before sin ever happened. But what was, what was the curse? It was the toil, the fatigue. I've got the scripture up there. It's Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19. It says, Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will not eat, or, and you will eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. That was the curse. Work is not the curse. Okay? Before sin, Adam took great joy and pleasure in being able to work for God. God created all this for him and said, it's yours. So he took joy in that. It was, he had a purpose. But when sin came, now it wasn't just, it was not the work that was the curse, but it was the toil. It was the fatigue. It was by the sweat of your brow. Now you're going to be tired. You're, you're going to long for these days to end. He had to earn his keep. And this is what we've been raised with. We've been taught, you earn your keep. You reap what you sow. But the truth is, Jesus reversed this curse. His birth marked the coming restoration of man's purpose. So now because Jesus has died, because he's already paid the price for you and me, there, for them in this, in this context, it was a, it was looking forward to that. They, they knew the Savior had come, but he had not died yet. But for us, on the other side of it, it has already happened. The curse has been reversed. Your work does not have to be full of weariness and full of fatigue 
because you can understand that your purpose in Christ has been, or your purpose with God has been restored through Christ. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? The work was not the curse, it was the toil. And we've been raised that you earn your keep, you reap what you sow. But the problem is we've taken that to be, I've got to earn my favor with God. Okay, because we've taken these things we've learned and we've applied it to God. Well, because I have to earn my keep here, and then I've got to earn my keep with God because he's, God's bigger than this world. So obviously, if I've got to earn it here, he's got to make me earn it there. But that's not what God is like. We are called to work with him, not for him. We're called to work with him as a, a parent-child relationship, as a uh, yeah, father-son relationship, not as an employee-boss relationship. Second Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read it last week. But Peter writes, he said, You have everything you need for life and godliness, through your divine or through your knowledge of him through relationship with him and then he says because of that you have become partners with God you get to enjoy all the perks of that you're not your purpose is not to be God's servant God's guinea pig your purpose is to be his child you go back to the the prodigal son story what did he say to the older son he said all i have is yours I don't want you to just work for me. I want you to enjoy what I have for you. That's why he threw the party for the lost son because he had been lost and now he was found. God doesn't want you at some, just in some part of his purpose working for him, toiling, being tired, working your fingers to the bone. He says, I want you to enjoy who I am. I want you to enjoy my presence. You've been saved from that curse. See, Isaiah tells us how the birth of a child would change this system. And Paul writes of how that birth did change the system. So we've got to get in our heads that the system has already been changed. Some of us think that, well, when Jesus comes back, then I don't have to, I don't have to earn it now. You don't have to earn it right now, this very moment. It's already been done. That's why you've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Yes, we still have to deal with the sinful world. We still have to deal with our sinful nature. But God has already done the work. He's already reversed the curse through Jesus. It has nothing to do with us. It has never had anything to do with us. And it never will have anything to do with us. And the sooner you can get that through your heart and mind, man, the better off you'll be. Jesus is the one who fulfills as we work with him and not for him, will truly be fulfilled. Whatever we do will have purpose. It's not about the kind of job you have, but it's about understanding your purpose in Christ. And no matter what God gives for you to do on this earth, when you understand your purpose is to be his child, that takes a lot of the fatigue, it takes a lot of the weariness out of those works. I get weary sometimes as a pastor, but... Much more often than not, man, this is a joy more than it is toil. It'll, and, and when you understand your purpose in Christ, it'll bring you much more joy than it will fatigue. Do you know why? It's not just because you're saved, it's just because you've been saved by God's grace. Not because you earned something, but because you were saved by His grace. Because when He shows you and you understand, finally, that it really doesn't have anything to do with you. It just releases this burden. It shatters that yoke, as Isaiah says. It shatters that yoke. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, many of us know that. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So you're saved by grace. Essentially, grace means God's undeserved favor. Okay, mercy is not giving you something you do deserve, relenting from giving you judgment, and grace is giving you something you don't deserve, giving you something good, his undeserved favor. And how does it happen? It's through faith. It's not through anything you do. 
through trusting in Jesus. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now some people take this scripture and say, see, you've got to, you, you've got to show that you have faith by doing this and doing that and doing this. It's not about that. Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith, so when it says without faith, it's impossible to please God, you could probably read it better by saying without Jesus, it's impossible to please God. Without a connection to Jesus, without faith in Jesus, not faith in your works, not faith in your church, faith in your doctrine, but faith in Christ. Without faith in him, it's impossible to please God. Because there is nothing about you and I without Christ that is pleasing to God because without him, we are all lawbreakers. And he has to look away from our sin. But Jesus took care of that. So now we're the ones saying, oh God, don't look, don't look. I'm, 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 a, I'm a monster. He said, no, you're not. I took care of that. You're like my firstborn son now. Only Jesus makes us pleasing, holy, and acceptable before God. See, it's not about trying, it's about trusting. Grace is such a foreign concept to a country like ours that the church, the church has often added conditions to grace to make it more, quote-unquote, understandable to people. But in doing so, we've actually made it more confusing because then people look at the Bible and they say, well, it doesn't make sense. Because it, it seems like, in some instances, God says, well, if you don't do this, you know, you're gonna die, and other, we, we have these conditions so that people, oh yeah, yeah, I gotta work for it. Yeah, it's, God's grace, that's great, but it's condition, you know, I gotta work for it. That's completely not in the definition of grace. If you have to work for it, then it's not grace. It's, you deserve it. You earned it. Grace is nothing that you can ever earn or deserve. And too often we create confusion instead of clarity with the message of grace. If you hear nothing else, listen to this right here, okay? Because I think this is, I think this is pretty, pretty powerful and it's simple to understand. Religion, works, all that stuff, it's based on one word, do. Do this, do that, do this. Salvation in Jesus is also based on one word, done. It's not about doing. It's already been done. And, you know, I mean, you'll hear people sometimes say, I've said it before and it's true, said, it's not about doing things for God, but it's about being who God has made you to be. And the way that you be that person is you understand that Jesus, his work is done. His work against sin is done. And now we await that day. We read last week in that passage in Hebrews. It says that Jesus did what he did. He defeated sin. And then what did he do? He sat down. I kind of gave you that picture that he had the mic. He just dropped it. Because it was done. And now he was just waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool. The work of salvation is done by Jesus. Now we know that not everyone's saved. Not everyone has received that yet. But Jesus' work, God's work of fixing that chasm, it is done. Payment for your salvation, done. The original word used for the phrase, it is finished, we find that in the, the Gospel of John. Okay, it's the only one that uses that phrase. But that phrase is really one, is one word. And that word was used, they would stamp it on bills that were paid. They would stamp it on a, a prisoner's sentence when they finished it. It stamped their record to say completed. So that word, Jesus is saying, I've stamped it, it's done. Think about this, you were, there was a warrant out for your arrest. You were charged with all kinds of things. You were, you know, you had a court date to stand before the judge. Your case wasn't just thrown out. Somebody else came in and said, I'll pay for that. So your case is closed. It's not just, we we got to understand this. People think that when they hear grace, they, they think, we're saying God looked the other way. God didn't look the other way. There was a price paid. You just didn't have to pay it. Somebody willingly, voluntarily, undeservedly took your place. That, you know, that word, when it was stamped on a bill, it was a legally binding statement that the debt was fully paid. Jesus has stamped 
your sin. And spiritually, you are bound, you are legally bound that your sin is no more. Now who in their right mind after someone saying, I will, I'll pay the price for this guy. I will put me in jail for his murder. Who in the right mind would say, wait a minute, no, that's just not right. I'm gonna go to jail. I, I gotta pay my debt to society. But that's what some people do spiritually. But when, the problem with that is you can't pay your debt spiritually. So you never get out. You're constantly in bondage. So you've got to let him pay the price. Let that stamp be enough. You know, I read this. A pastor talked about it. He said, when people ask me what must I do to be saved, I said, my answer is nothing. It's already been done. You simply believe and receive that sacrifice. Now that is, you know, if you want to say a condition, that's the only condition. Because God does not affect free will. You've got to choose it. You've got to make the decision to choose that, to receive that sacrifice. But beyond that, there is nothing that you have to do, nothing that you can do. Because as Paul goes on to say in Ephesians, this is not of yourselves. This, this, you know, this salvation is not from yourselves. It's a gift from God. That's called justification. Your arrest warrant was canceled. The charges against you were dropped. Not because God looked the other way, but because Jesus paid the debt for you. Justified, you've probably heard people say this, is basically saying justified never sinned. When you are justified through Christ, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Because it's all on him. Jesus' birth was the greatest gift because it brought about your salvation. You've been saved from sin and from self-reliance. You've been saved for your original purpose. And you've been saved by the grace of God. You didn't have to do anything for it but believe it and receive it. It's that Christmas gift that he just says, here, open it. Now enjoy it. Who's going to open it and say, wow, this is awesome. I can't take it. Right? I've done that with gifts sometimes. I'm like, oh, this is too much. You spent too much on me. My grandma, every year, okay, my grandma has like a million grandkids and great-grandkids now. I keep telling her, I'm like, grandma, just take care of the kids, you know, Get stuff for my girls. I don't need anything. And she gets mad. She says, I am getting you something and you are not going to say another word. And sometimes I think, you know, I picture God being the same way. This is for you. I'm not taking it back. Just enjoy it, please. There's no return policy. Okay, God threw away all the receipts. He said, "I, I don't want it back. I don't need it back. It's for you. Enjoy it. It's not by works so that no one can boast. No one's going to be in heaven and say, yeah, I did it. Man, I I did this. But I think that's the message sometimes people get from the church. Well, I'm saved because I've done this. You're not saved because you haven't done this. We say, you know, I'm saved because I blank. And you can be too as long as you, and we put some conditions out there. If the answer to those blanks is anything other than trust in Jesus, then the answer is wrong. The only thing that saves you is trusting in Jesus. If there's any other answer, it's a false gospel. Okay, that was, that was one of Paul's main, main missions was to teach all these people that don't listen to this false gospel. It's not about any of these things. It's about Jesus. We're saved because of him. About to close right here. Um, you know, I read a story. <clears throat> this, uh, the author was a lifeguard at one point and he talked about some of the lifeguard training. And he said one of the things that they taught was that drowning people a lot of times begin to panic. Okay? Pretty, I'm sure it's pretty common. You're drowning they, so they, start, they start flailing around and doing all this stuff. He said, as lifeguards, we're taught to tread water and kind of stay back a little bit and wait for them to give up. He said, because if, if you try to go in there and do that, they're going to take you down with them. He said, it's a lot harder when they're flailing around because it's, you know, they, they don't, they're not thinking clearly. They're not thinking, oh, I, this guy's here. I can trust him. He said, so we're actually trained 
to tread water, stay back a little bit, and as soon as they begin to give up, grab them. He said, I'm not everyone does that, but the reason that you're taught that is so because it's much easier to save them once they've given up. Their bodies are more relaxed and it becomes obviously a lot easier to drag them to, uh, to land. A drowning person must trust the lifeguard. And then he made this statement. He said, we're taught that a drowning person cannot be saved until he stops trying to save himself. And it applies even much more spiritually. No one can be saved until they stop trying to save themselves. And we have a lot of people that are trying to save themselves. So the question is, have you given up trying to save yourself? Stop flailing around because for some of us, we think we're, you know, we got this all together, but what we're really doing is flailing around spiritually. And God's just, not that we would take God up or we know that we can't do that, but I think sometimes he just, he just kind of sits back a little bit, says, as soon as you give up, I can take you in my arms, we can do this. But you gotta stop trying to save yourself. Matthew 27, 39 and 40, I think I've got it on there too. You know, we have an account of Jesus on the cross, and it says, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Jesus ignored that, because his goal in coming to earth wasn't to save himself. He didn't need saving. You know, they wanted a sign that he was who he said. He said, but I didn't come to save myself. I came to save you. The only way that Jesus could save us was by giving himself up. And the only way that you can be saved is by giving yourself up to Jesus. You literally, you literally have nothing to lose and everything to gain by trusting in Jesus. You can try and save yourself by trusting yourself and trusting this world. You can do, 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 and do until you're you know, until your heart gives out. And then you can take all the worry and the fatigue that comes with it. Or you can trust Jesus. You can give up and let go of everything. Now when I say give up, I'm not saying throw in the towel, but you're surrendering. Say, God, I'm surrendering to your will. See, we see giving up, we see white flag as a sign of weakness. But to God, it's a sign of strength because... You can't do it on your own. And it's, it's a sign of strength for someone to admit that I can't do it on my own and lay themselves down for the Lord than the person who tries to be strong and hide it all and, and do and do and do. That's not strength. That's fear. That's weakness because they don't want anyone to see. But Jesus says, just give up. You have to stop trying to save yourself if you want to be saved. That's why we have that passage where Jesus says, if you want to save your life, lose it for my sake. If you want to truly be saved, lose your life. So if you truly want to live, die. What? But that's essentially what he's saying. If you really want to live, then give up your life. Give up control of your life. And just think, all of this All of this happened because some 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a manger in Bethlehem, out in the middle of nowhere, in a stable. Shepherds who, they weren't the nobles, they weren't the kings, and they weren't the important people. Shepherds, the the angel comes to tell these shepherds, you want to go see what's happening. Because this baby you've been hearing about for 700 years, he's here. All this stuff we just talked about happened because of the birth of one baby. Jesus gave up of himself. (laughs) Someone else just gave up. (laughs) That microphone might have picked up that one. That That was good. That was a good illustration right there. You've just got to let it go. And you've got to trust Jesus. All of this because of a baby. 
that was born some 2,000 years ago. What a what an amazing story! I, we're gonna we're gonna close by uh, sharing communion. Now I've got a I've got a mix in here because I didn't know if I had enough of the you know bread and juice all in one. So there are some juice and bread separate. Uh, just take take whatever you would want, I guess. Missy, would you mind? You start with these. We may have enough of the of all those together. We'll just use those. But as as we prepare to take communion, I just want to ask you a couple questions. Um, the first is, or actually, there's just one question. How many of you? I know often we have you close your eyes, but you can leave them open. Where you know this is a safe place. How many of you? We all find ourselves in this place at one point or another, but you see, on a regular basis, Pastor, I really, as I look at my life, it seems like I'm trying to save myself. I'm, I'm so, I'm very concerned with doing this and doing that, and I'm trying to do everything just right. That I get, you know, I get anxious and I get fatigued and I get worried and I get worn out because I understand, I understand in my head, I understand in my head that I that that I've been saved and it's not about me, but I haven't gotten it down to my heart yet. How many of you would say, that's where I'm at? Could you just pray? Pray that the Lord would help me understand that I can't justify myself. I can't save myself. I can't do it on my own. I'm tired of being tired. I'm tired of being fatigued. I don't want to be under that curse anymore. I want to work knowing that my purpose is as a child of God, as a firstborn son of God, not as as his employee but as his precious child. Anyone that would just raise a hand and say, yeah, pastor, you don't pray for me. A few of you, thank you for your honesty. And like I said, we all find ourselves there at points in our lives. And there was a point in my life where that's all I was. I was all about trying to save myself. That I knew Jesus saved me, but I felt like I had to keep it there. It's like, okay, you saved me, but I don't want to mess it up, so I better do everything just right. And it does, it wears you out. You get fatigued, you get tired. And then what happens when you get tired and worn out? You get cranky and and you get, you know, people don't really want to be around you because you're all, you know, you're all cranky. And But Jesus says, give up, stop trying to save yourself. So when you do, it's much easier for me to carry you. And it's okay to be carried by God. Okay, get get out of your pride that says, well, i got to do this. No, you don't have to do anything. Now, Jesus lets you partner with him. God is going to let you partner with him and do some amazing things through his, through his Holy Spirit. See, you're going to get to work and you're going to get to do plenty of things, but it's not going to be from a curse that you've got to do it to earn favor. You're doing it because now God has made you his partner. In doing, in carrying out the divine work of seeing people saved and discipled on earth. I just want to pray for you, and then, and then we're gonna take, take communion together. God, for those who raise their hands, Lord, and, uh, who openly admit that, man, I, I try to do it too much on my own. And again, Lord, this is something that we all face from time to time, but some of us, maybe more than others, we, it's really a lifestyle for us. We're so focused on doing this and doing that, and, and maybe it's not, you know, it may not be just about, well, the more I do, the better God will accept me. Some, sometimes it's, it's our pride that gets in the way. It says, well, but if I give up, I'm weak. If I, if I say I can't do it, then, then I'm not strong. I'm, you know, people aren't going to respect me. But Lord, you, you tell us plain and clear the only way to save ourselves is to give up. So for those, Lord, that raised their hands and said, I struggle with this. I, I depend too much on myself. Help them to give up, Lord. It's something that you can't make them do, but I pray that the truth of your word, the truth of who you are, the truth of your salvation would so overwhelm them was so overwhelmed their hearts, their minds, their spirits that they they couldn't help but lay themselves down and say, Lord, that's what I want. I can't do it. I want you. 
Every time that those temptations come, Lord, I pray your word instead would come and, and Lord, it would lead them back to who you are, lead them back to that, that baby that was born 2,000 years ago, what he brought. He brought salvation. Because through him, the government would be on his shoulders. His peace would, would have no end. He would break, shatter, shatter the burden, shatter the yoke that has, that once held us bound. Lord, you've shattered it, you've paid the price, why would we ever want to put it back on? Why would we, would we ever want to, uh, try to pay the price ourselves when you've taken it for us? I lift up those that raise their hands, God, I, and I do pray that you just make who you are so clear to them. That anything the enemy would try to do to deceive them, to, to infiltrate their thoughts and, and lie to them, that Lord, your word would reign supreme, that your word, God, would, um, would come to them, the Holy Spirit, you would prompt them with the promises of God's word. For the rest of us, Lord, that, that, rest of those that didn't raise hands, Lord, um, I'm thankful that, that they don't walk with, with that kind of burden. But in the times that we do, I pray that your word would always take precedence, that Lord, your word would always be our, our, uh, our guard, that the truth of your word would always, God, overwhelm anything the enemy would try to do, any temptation he would bring, any deceit he would bring. Because the birth of Jesus brought about a time of salvation, not only for the people of Israel, which in that day and time, I just can't imagine, Lord, what they were thinking and, and the the excitement that was there. But now, God, it's still today that salvation still reigns supreme. Lord, your, your kingdom has been brought to earth and it has been ever increasing since that day. We thank you, Lord, for Christmas time that is not just the time of family and presence and all the commercialized stuff, but that at its core, it's a time of salvation. That you saw it, you saw to it that your people be saved from themselves. And you did it by bringing your one and only son into this world. To grow as a man, to live as a man, to die, to die a death that we were meant to die. He lived the life we were supposed to live and he died the death we were supposed to die. He took our place. And because of that, Lord, we now have a place in your presence. What an amazing thing. Lord, we give you all glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the, let's take the elements and we take first the bread and we recall that on that night, Lord Jesus broke the bread, he distributed it among the disciples and said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And God, we do take this bread. Yeah, it's just a little wafer in our hands, but, but God, it symbolizes you sending your son who was this beautiful baby, grew to be a man and died the most gruesome death in the history of man. It wasn't deserved, it wasn't, he did nothing to, to warrant that except take our place. God, I can't think of a greater gift that this world could ever offer than what you brought to us through your broken body. We remember that as we take of the bread. And the same way on that night, Jesus took the cup. said, this is my blood which has been spilled for you. I always go back to that word that the Lord spoke, that one drop of his blood was enough. Because it was perfect, it was blameless, it was without spot. There was no, no sin and nothing flawed at all about his blood. Because he fulfilled the law, his sacrifice fulfill the payment for sin and it brought our salvation 
to its fulfillment, that we can enjoy it today. Lord, what an amazing gift, the gift of your blood. Let's take the cup. Just close simply by thanking you, Lord, for the gift of your son. May our eyes uh, be focused upon you and everything that's, that's done this season. Give us opportunities to share how Christmas time is more than, than gifts and lights and decorations. It's about a baby who came some 2,000 years ago and brought about the salvation of all mankind. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.